Masonic Light Podcast. This is Past Master Moira calling in with my critique of episode 83 with Brother John Bridegroom. He was a very interesting guest, a great interview, and brought up some, some really unique ideas about getting artists involved in the craft. I especially enjoyed when he talked about uh, our jewels and how cheap they are sometimes, and our patents and our certificates. Uh, I've, have, I've had some high-quality things given to me over the years, and then some stuff that's really cheap that is hidden in the uh, old, old, our old entertainment center in, in our living room, which we never sit in. Anyway, I, I think you guys should continue having your episodes recorded at Columbia. It was really great, great sound, not. Uh, Larry, your voice is getting more and more gravelly, Maybe you ought to go to a throat specialist. Let's see here. Uh, I really enjoyed Jim Stevens' uh, budgeting talk for the Lodge Business Briefs. And guys, these Masonic Marketplace ads are so hokey. It reminds me of Leave It to Beaver episodes. You, you got to change it. It just it they, they're terrible. And lastly, Tim Dedman brought up uh, something that I left go at the meeting in the woods, something with Knox. I don't recall that. So uh, if you want to have me call in or I'll stop by on a, on a future episode, you guys can put me on the spot, bust my chops about whatever it is that, that I left go. Anyway, um, great guest. I'm going to try and listen to episode 84 tomorrow. So I hope to uh, call in tomorrow. If not, it'll be in two weeks. Talk to you later. Bye. From the new recording lair located deep beneath the Wine and Spirit Store in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Masonic Light Podcast. Studio 665 presents Masonic Light Podcast. This show is recorded by Masons, for Masons, and is for entertainment purposes only. And please, no wagering. This podcast is not endorsed by any Grand Lodge, and the ridiculous ramblings of the hosts are their own. And now, here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Masonic Light Podcast. This is Tim Dedman, and this is episode 87. 87. 87 of the Masonic Light Podcast. We haven't, haven't been arrested yet. Not yet. Uh, tonight's episode is brought to you by our Masonic Light patrons. Um, if you'd like to become a sponsor of our show, please visit www.patreon.com slash Masonic Light Podcast. And for as little as one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. What can you get for a dollar these days? Nothing, Nothing. except fantastic Masonic education. That is true. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep the lights on here. Less than your dues. Yes, definitely less than your dues. So on tonight's episode, uh, we'll be hearing from Jim Stevens. Uh, we will hear the Masonic news from uh, Jack Harley. And then normally we would have final thoughts with Larry Maris, but we are missing a couple of folks. Yeah, right now our our thoughts are with Larry Maris. Our thoughts are so, with yes. Larry, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, anyway, in studio with us today uh, are Jack Harley, 
Josh Lamberton, and our special guest host, the Reverend Dr. Brother Christopher Rodney. Reverend Dr. Brother. RDB. <laughs> RDB. We're going to call you RDB. <laughs> Hell yeah. Over to RDB right now. Oh. Did you ever see the movie Fear of a Black Hat? No. No. There's this African-American preacher on it that's the Reverend Dr. Deacon Doug. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. it. Like Go, it. Going off about the evils of rap music. Uh, yeah. With Kanye. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So as we normally do, uh, let's talk about uh, what of Masonic significance have we been involved with since our last episode. Uh, Jack, you want to start? Uh, let's see. I did uh, give my St. John's, Holy Saints John talk at uh, Lodge what Lambert Lodge was I? Was I at your lodge for that? No, you were. No, I was at forty three. Yeah, I was. I forget. Uh, I was at Lodge forty three in Lancaster, and it enticed me to start fleshing it out and making a paper out of it. So I, that I'm, I'm nearly, I'm nearly done. I have to go back and find sources to cite to support my position in uh, all of it. I've, I've written it now. I have to go find sources to cite. So otherwise, it's not scholarly. So you know how that is, Chris, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I've just uh, just been doing doing my thing. All right, Chris, how about you? Yeah, the the uh, most notable thing I guess I've done recently is I've gone to a tall cedar meeting. I'm the chaplain for York Forest Number no. Thirty, yeah. um, and uh, uh, I enjoy tall cedars. It's a different kind of organization. We've heard Pete talk about this over and over again on the show. Um, and uh, uh, we're getting ready for a new year with the Tall Cedars. And I also mentioned that I've, I've watched about 10 times the uh, Masonic funeral service for Elijah Cummings mm-hmm. uh-huh. that was uh, perhaps accidentally or just happened to be uh, broadcast on C-SPAN, which I, I thought was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't know how many times I've watched it, but it's really interesting stuff. It was interesting. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the um, Tall Cedars. The Grand Tall Ball was... Uh, most recent, correct? Yeah, I had a church conflict, so oh. I couldn't go. Okay. I, I did go. Yeah. I was oh. there. It was a great time. Uh, it was uh, uh, the Grand Tall uh, Jeff Fulton Sr. Mm-hmm. was the master of ceremonies. Well, he wasn't really the master of ceremonies, but he was in charge of it all, and it came off beautifully. They had a big band. Um, they had some dancers that actually follow this big band around, mm-hmm. and they were redunculous. <laughs> throwing each other around and just dancing like mad and i was walking past il duce's table and he said you need to get out there on the dance floor and i said yeah get these pros off of there and yeah. i'll go <laughs> i'll go out and stumble around with my wife but so that's my question did anybody else get up and dance? we did we did okay. we uh we finally got them to turn the lights down so no one would see how embarrassing <laughs> we were pictures and we we got out it was great it was Good. it was a really nice time and and we don't we don't do very much of that anymore. I think mm-hmm. dances like that used to be a very popular thing, and I'm sorry that they're not. And I'm I'm starting a low level movement to maybe have um, one or two of those uh, somewhere. I don't know whether it's Grotto or God help us if it's Grotto, but uh, <laughs> you know, really, <laughs> uh, but but uh, you know, there's something nice about it. You, you dress up, you, you look nice, you go out, and you and you and you, you know dance a little bit. Why not? Do the right. tall cedar version of the electric slide. That would be the electric Ooh. wheelchair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Josh, how about you? Uh, pretty much just uh, talking to people about being in chairs for next year. And that's trying to track people down. That's an important uh, 
duty for one about to uh, be officially uh, assigned to the East. So, great. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, for me, really uh, participated in two of the degrees at the uh, Valley of Harrisburg Scottish Rite Reunion, uh, and then have conducted, been part of a team that conducted trainings uh, on the Salesforce database with incoming district deputies within the Grand Lodge, Pennsylvania, mm. and also we did a regional training for new secretaries and treasurers in about four or five different districts um, for folks that are starting uh, St. John's Day next. Uh, gotcha. Letting them know what they're in for. So um, that's been about it. Um, so let's take a short break, and we will be back with a conversation with Earl Fontenelle of The Schwepp. The Secret History of Western Esotericism Podcast. Why choose George J. Grove & Sons for your next home improvement project? At George J. Grove & Sons, we've built our reputation on quality and trust for more than 50 years. For planning to materials to installation, George J. Grove promises a home improvement experience second to none. Whether your goal is reducing energy costs, decreasing maintenance, updating curb appeal, or simply increasing the value of your home, the George J. Grove team will recommend and provide solutions that stand the test of time. Call 717-393-0859 for an estimate or visit us at georgejgrove.com. Welcome back. Uh, we're about to embark on a conversation that is just designed to blow your mind. So go get a roll of duct tape and put it around your head. We're going to talk to uh, a, a gentleman. His name is Earl Fontenelle. And Earl is the host of a podcast called The Secret History of Western Esotericism. So for those of you Masons that like to dive deep you are in the You're right place. You're going to need place. more than a snorkel today. <laughs> so sit back, hold on, and here is our new best friend, Earl Fontenelle. Hello, this is Earl Fontenelle, and... You may be surprised to know that this is not the Schwepp. This is the Masonic Light podcast, where I'm very delighted to be speaking with Jack, Chris, Josh, and Tim in that order uh, <laughs> about things which one assumes will be Masonic All right. or, stuff. or stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so you, that's Earl. That's the start. Um, we're going to kick off the, uh, our, our conversation with Earl right now. And uh, for those of you that uh, haven't heard me talk about the Schwepp, there was a, a Masonic gathering at some point, and I was talking about things uh, esoteric. And Chris approached me and said, have you heard this podcast called the Schwepp? 
And uh, I think that was the same conversation you you introduced me to the word hermeneutics, which was okay. foreign to me. So, but the um, but I said no, and I and so he gave me the site, and I tuned it in, and um, my my brain exploded all over the inside of my car as I listened to the first episode of the Schwab. Brilliant, and uh, and I've been a fan ever since. Uh, I just listened to the. Um, uh, the most recent episode on the uh, Chaldean oracles. Uh, so I am com- I am completely up to date uh, on the Schwepp. In fact, I, I go back from time to time and, and re-listen to it. But uh, Earl, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself um, as as best you can, remaining esoteric, and yeah. uh, and, and, <laughs> and we'll take off from there. Yes. Well, obviously, I cannot discuss the uh, initiatory matters. But um, well, yeah, I'm I. I am a classicist by training, right? So I've done the PhD in the classics, um, but I'm very, very interested in, well, I'm really a historian, a historian of ideas, I think. Um, I'm very interested in the places culturally where philosophy, religion, and magic sort of mix and mingle. Um, And uh, so that's kind of what I work on. And I got involved in... The, the academic field of Western esotericism a few years ago, because I discovered that you could do a, an MA, a taught MA in Western esotericism at the University of Amsterdam. So I went and did that, which was two years of, of my brain exploding all over the inside <laughs> of my, my uh, rather dingy flat in Amsterdam. And um, that, so I'm not a, a specialist on the whole scope of Western esotericism because no one can be. But um, especially in the, the ancient world. And then one thing led to another, and I started getting into this. Uh, this you know, do you know Peter Adamson's podcast, uh, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I was listening to that and thinking, what a cool idea, you know. And then I thought, well, you could do like History of Western Esotericism without any gaps. And for some reason, that, you know, the chain of events sort of escapes me at this stage. I just thought, oh, I'll just go ahead and do it. I've got a microphone. I've got a computer. Uh, I think that can't be that hard. As it happens in my studio where I am now, like just right around the corner is this this buddy of mine, Simon, who designs WordPress websites. So he uh, said, yeah, I could design you a podcast website. And we just, you know, a couple months went by and then finally it was up and running. And I was like, oh, I better do it. So I started doing it. And here we are two years later in the second century CE, and uh, yeah, it's taken you two, two years to get a couple of couple of centuries in, but it, it, it starts with with what? I mean, you start with the the, the pre Greeks. Um, you, yeah, you speak well, briefly I start about with, what's happening there, but I mean, I start with some introductory stuff where I try to get a, get a grip on what we mean by Western esotericism mm-hmm. for the first sort of four episodes in which incidentally, I've after two years, I've really rethought and if I, you know, yeah, I don't really want to go back and redo stuff because I think it's nice to have the development of my thinking mm-hmm. preserved in the podcast, if you sure. see what I mean. Yeah. But um, I would definitely do those introductory episodes differently nowadays if I were if I were to do it because I've spent two years really engaging with what the heck we mean by Western esotericism, right? Right. Um, and then, it, yeah, it starts with um, an interview with a guy called Richard Seaford who... Um, it talks about the the birth of 
the soul mm-hmm. in sort of coming out of the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then we get into the Greeks and, you know, talk about some key ancient or the sort of classical period Greek material, which is essential for Western culture and Western esotericism, like Plato, like the Orphic stories, um, like the mysteries, the mystery cults, which sort of provide a, um, a template for much later uh, initiatory fellowship, like Freemasonry, for example. Um, and then we're, we're moving into this sort of, I would say, roughly speaking, Platonistic Aristotelian um, tradition, which is a, is a broad church. You know, there's a lot going on within this tradition. So we talk about it as a tradition, but that doesn't imply that it's like all one thing, if you know what I mean. Um, and some new stuff is coming on the scene, like this new thing called Christianity, and that's going to have a big effect. And um, in a few centuries time, there's going to be this new, this other new big thing called Islam that comes on the scene. And oh, and we, the Jews are there already and they're doing their thing and they're very important to the whole story and so that's sort of where we're at so uh it's it's said that when the student is ready the teacher will appear and and Mm. i was ready for this when chris introduced me to you and and you you filled a gap and what i would what i immediately perceived in what i was hearing from the schwepp um is is the idea that as this Freemasonry that we have now, this Grand Lodge Freemasonry that we work within now, as it was being developed, these concepts were were very popular within the aristocracy of England and Scotland and Ireland at the time, and that these people were reading Plato, and they were reading Plato in Greek, and and they were they were incorporating a lot of these concepts that were these humanist concepts that were being sort of fleshed out for a modern, mm. for a modern society. So what you were saying when I was hearing it was, it was, um, was really interesting. And, and you mentioned a couple of topics. I just jotted a couple of notes down to, to, as topic headings to talk about initiation. Um, yeah. Everybody kind of knows that Freemasonry is an initiatic experience, but but how how far back does that go, and and how does it become a part of what we're doing thousands of years later? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, there's a few things I feel s- I could say safely about that where I'm not um, exceeding the limits of my ex- expertise. Um. One thing that's for sure is that in antiquity, in Greco-Roman antiquity, um, and we always have to remember that all our knowledge of, or not all, but most of our knowledge of the earlier Greek world, like the classical period, is very much filtered through Greco-Roman antiquity. So the, the, of the philosophers we have from antiquity, the vast majority of them lived from like the third century CE to the beginning of the medieval period, the late antique philosophers, and they preserve tons of stuff from earlier days. So we see everything kind of through the lens of their selection. But the locus classicus, the, the, the primordial Western reference point for initiation is the mysteries, and especially the mysteries of Eleusis, which was a little town near Athens, which became the most sort of prestigious initiatory cult in antiquity. So that 
idea of initiation, right? The idea of the Eleusinian mysteries then gets absorbed by philosophy, notably by Plato, who says, ah, the real initiation is philosophy. And that's the, just the first example of someone taking this idea of initiation, which is just a sort of cultic thing, right? And making it something non-cultic, making it something intellectual, making it something um, outside of what you'd call traditional cult. So, so that's... The, Go on. No, I, I was just going to say. So, at Eleusis, what do you get for your for your dues? What? what, what? Well, we don't know exactly. <laughs> what, um, you know, and that's one of the interesting things about ancient initiation and the, the mysteries is our evidence. Well, check this out. Every year, about roughly two thousand people would get initiated at Eleusis. They could come from all walks of life. They could be slaves. They could be women. They could be men. They could be aristocrats. In the Eleusinian initiation, it was a completely leveling, socially leveling experience. We know you went there. You went, you went through in this procession along the sacred way. You had to fast for a few days or, or observe a special diet. I think a vegetarian diet, actually. No, we can't do that. No. <laughs> yeah. Have have no beer. Beans. I think. I think no sex for three days, or at least some of the ancient cults would have a, a little no sex period before that's not a problem <laughs> <laughs> and then you would have the this was called catharmos or uh, catharsis this was purification then you'd have the lesser initiation and the greater initiation and what actually went on no one can say for sure there was certainly a period where you where you were in darkness and you were sort of terrified. This It was like really, really frightening. And, and a lot of scholars think that this was a kind of living through the experience of dying before you actually die. So, um, and I, I know that in Masonic uh, initia initiations, there is also a bit of a, a threat involved in some of the rituals. There's a bit of, I don't know how terrifying it is. It, I guess it depends on how hardcore the Masonic Lodge <laughs> you're dealing with is. Some are more you than know. others, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I think I think in antiquity we can say that they really did, we don't know how they did it, stagecraft was certainly involved, um, you know, sort of manipulation of the scene was involved. But there was a period of darkness, and at least for some people it genuinely was terrifying. This was the goal anyway. Like if you weren't terrified by that bit, you wouldn't be uplifted by the next bit, which was epopsis, which involved light, dazzling light, suddenly coming out of the darkness, and seeing certain sacred things. Tim's, Tim's brain just exploded. I'm sorry. We're yeah. going to have to get a mop because he hasn't listened to your show, but I bet yeah. he's going to. Absolutely. <laughs> so... So you guys are freemasons. So this this is all stuff that we can pretty much say for sure happened at Eleusis and probably had parallels in lots of other initiatory cults in antiquity. Now, more than that, there's plenty of scholars who've, who've attempted to reconstruct way more than that. But I would say that what I've just laid out is the stuff that is totally uncontroversial, that is reflected again and again. And this is also the stuff that it was allowed to talk about in front of non-initiates. You could pub you, What I've just said, you could write about this. You could say... In in Plato, for example, the epopteia, the, the viewing of the sacred objects at the end, this is what happens when the philosopher encounters the worlds of forms. It's epopteia. It's viewing these sacred realities. 
what was Epoptea? Some scholars want to say there were some statues, some cult statues that you viewed, right? Some people, and some, some mysteries definitely had a teaching that was secret. So it often took the form of a myth, probably the story of Demeter and Persephone, which you guys might be familiar with. You know, so Persephone gets seized by Hades, the god of the underworld, and he, she has to marry him. And Demeter gets really sad about this. And therefore, it's eternal winter because Demeter is sort of the goddess of um, fertility and grain and stuff like that. And the gods say, oh, my God, this eternal winter thing is not good. Everyone's dying. They do so they deal. have to work out a deal where Persephone's only in the underworld for half the year. Hence, we have summer and winter. Hence, the seasons. Hence, the cycle of the world. So probably that some variation on that myth was the... Hieros Logos, the sacred tale at uh, Eleusis. So if, if I said the phrase veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols, that would apply here. Hmm. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who's read anything on masonry has, has read that. that that's, a, yeah. that's, a, that's a very common definition of the craft. I, I dig it. Um, the term allegory, that allegoria in Greek, doesn't really show up until Plutarch, who mm. writes in the s first century CE, early Middle Platonist mm -hmm. author. Um, but that kind of hermeneutic <gasps> is, is certainly visible. Well, yes, we definitely have hermeneutics that we would call allegorical before that time. And the classic sure. example is, of course... The Derveni Papyrus, which oh, you guys course, know all absolutely. about. So I won't, I won't, I don't have to get into that. <laughs> Chris is, Chris is trying to compose himself over here. Chris is like, God, the Derveni Papyrus, not the Derveni not Papyrus that again. again. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Mom. That old chestnut. <laughs> so, um, all right. So we, um, so I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let Chris wear you out. Um, there is another. Uh, there is another element that I think the listeners will um, will, and you've already touched on it, and that's catabasis, mm. um, which which keeps coming back again and again. Um, but um, tell us what that is. And, and well, oh, by talking. the way, if you listen, if you listen to the Schwepp, um, mm -hmm. your vocabulary will expand by at least two thirds because it, it's <laughs> the, the, his his vocabulary is ridiculous, and I'm not sure he's not making up words as he goes along. So, <laughs> oh, I am, but, I am for sure. <laughs> but um, tell us about catabasis, what it is. But I should say, I should say, I really try not to use um, fancy academic speak oh, you're failing you know you're failing at that. um i think i i end up failing but not failing not failing as miserably as i could because i am an academic by trade so no, but you know, i speak but, a jargon but as someone who's not an academic it's it's challenging and i appreciate it i i because i grow from it so it's a good thing out of interest do you guys know that there is a, a glossary on the schwepp uh, no, I, yeah. yeah, Chris is Chris has spent more time it, on the web. Yeah, and I think people just don't know this, and and there's no reason they should. But if you go to Schwepp Info, and then on Info there's a glossary, there's a resource pages, and there's an about the Schwepp page. If you go to glossary, there's a bunch of terms like hermeneutic and um, okay a priori and stuff like that that I that I use, and also people I interview use. Right, I interview right. a bunch of academics, and they're not often they don't speak english they speak <laughs> academic so i've tried to i've tried to give some you know some useful uh glossary stuff there but um catabasis 
the way you see now you've asked the question about Katabasis. I'm just thinking, okay, so these Masons are in their initiations are obviously going down into some kind of cave and I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure it out, but um, a Katabasis is a Greek word. It just means uh, going down descent. It means descent. Okay. And in the classical world, when you wanted to go on a journey in search of wisdom, you went down into the underworld. So we see this in Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus wants to kind of, he's been away from home for a long time and he wants to find out what's been going on. So he goes down into the underworld and talks to the dead um, people who he fought alongside in the Trojan War. He talks to the dead Achilles and so on. And, and they kind of, because the dead know more than the living in some ways, it's a good place to go for knowledge. And we also know that in the mystery cults and related movements like Orphism, that this journey to the underworld was a major um, theme. So that's catabasis in a nutshell. Also going down into caves, there was, uh, we find this theme very much associated with the Pythagorean tradition. And, um, and this catabasis theme goes right through to late antiquity. Um, in, the, in the Mithraic mysteries, for example, the place where the Mithraists would meet would be a cave or an artificial cave. So they would have like a, a shop front on some street in Rome and you go in and they've made it into a cave. They've sort of stuccoed it and made it into like a grotto. So they were really, so part of their thing was to go into a cave for their um, communal feasts. And the cave was painted with or decorated with a whole bunch of astronomical, astrological symbolism and this is a really interesting thing about a catabasis very often catabasis is associated with astral symbolism so mm -hmm. it's like to go down to go up or to contemplate the sun and the stars and stuff like this you have to go down and it's this weird mm -hmm. inversion thing mm -hmm. okay so i think on that um what, let's take a quick break uh and let okay. everyone wrap their heads in duct tape and, uh, and we'll come back in just a minute and uh, we'll have a little bit more with Earl Fontenelle from the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. At the historic Smithton Inn of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, we're pleased to serve the latest creations from Weathered Vineyard Winery, along with spirits from Thistle Finch Distillery in Lancaster, all to be experienced in the tasting room of a beautifully restored 18th century bed and breakfast. Cigars by DNS Cigar are available for your enjoyment in the courtyard. The historic Smithton Inn is convenient to Lancaster County's most interesting attractions. Just minutes from the Ephrata Cloister and the Green Dragon Farmer's Market. And a short drive can get you to charming Lidditz, thriving downtown Lancaster, as well as Hershey, Bird in Hand, and Intercourse, or Valley Forge, Gettysburg. Whether you're looking for a romantic getaway or an active vacation full of sightseeing and attractions, the historic Smithton Inn will be a welcoming oasis from everyday life, one that you'll want to visit again and again. Stop in and visit at 900 West Main Street in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, or check out our website at historicsmithtoninn.com, or simply call us at 717-733-6000. Nine four. Just ask for Passmaster Dave.
And we're back. Uh, we're with, back. We're back with Earl Fontenelle of the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, theschwep.net. And um, he's, uh, he's blown all of our minds here, but um, there is one mind in the room greater than all of these minds, and that is uh, the Reverend Dr. Chris Rodkey, who uh, has a couple of questions that he would like to ask. Uh, mm. Our friend Earl. Thank so, you for that great introduction. Go for, for it. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll ask the question. While while uh, there was a bathroom break, I asked a question, and I think I should ask it again. Uh, while you were talking about the descent, uh, the first thing I was thinking was, because uh, of the time period of which you're speaking, uh, is pre-Socratic, right? And so... Mm. Um, I started thinking, well, what if the alleg- Plato's allegory is a reversal of, of this descent? And uh, uh, that's my question. I think that's exactly right. I think you're totally, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Plato being an, uh, super into taking all manner of traditional materials and stuff from philosophy and stuff that's around, mm-hmm. and then just like turning it on its head for his own philosophic purposes in the allegory of the cave, which is what you're talking about from the Republic, his, mm-hmm. his, one of his greatest works, right? He totally reverses the catabasis theme. So instead of wanting to go into the cave to find wisdom, we, the humans are stuck in the cave, looking at an imitation of reality and the ones who seek wisdom, free themselves, climb up into the light by stages, it's a sort of more complicated than this, but it end up in the light of day, looking around at the real world going, oh my God. And then interestingly, when they go back into the cave and try to tell people what right. the real world is like, the people kill them because right. they're like, how dare you? You're lying. It's not like that. Right. <laughs> of course they do. A prophet is always, uh, you know, spurned in his own country or whatever. So um, I think my, my, my intuition historically, and this is not provable, but is that the journey to the journey up as the um, the primary kind of wisdom quest narrative? We see it in Christianity for sure. You're, you're familiar with um, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Chris, where he says, "I know a man in Christ who," um, and everyone thinks this is actually Paul talking about himself, but he doesn't say me. He says. a a brother of ours in Christ or something like that, who ascended to the third heaven, whether in the body or the soul, I know not. Um, So this journey up becomes from Plato onward becomes the, um, the go-to wisdom narrative. And I wonder if Plato isn't the the reason for that. And I suspect that he is, I suspect he's so influential that his flipping the catabasis narrative into anabasis ascent um, wasn't that didn't then spawn this this whole new kind of wisdom narrative? That's fascinating. So, would the descent into hell of Jesus be a, a reinsertion of this in the tradition? Yeah, I think Catabasis and Anabasis they never die. Neither of them ever dies in Western culture, and they often flip. So you saw with the Catabasis, like for example, we have these these Orphic gold tablets which are fascinating things. Have you guys come across these? They were no. we, they find them in tombs. And I think the earliest ones are from about, I think the earliest one from, from, the, from near Athens is from the third century BCE. And it's mm. like a little piece of gold. It's called a lamella. 
um, like a thin gold sheet. And because gold isn't reactive, it survives forever in a tomb. So mm-hmm. you pull them out of the ground and they look as sparkly and shiny as the day they were made. And they have inscriptions on them. And these it's very clear that these inscriptions are meant to be something that the person is to memorize. And then they're going to use it when they get to the underworld to obtain a better next life. And what you have to do, you go to the underworld, there's going to be two paths. One path is the path of forgetfulness, and that leads to just plain old Hades. The other path is the path that leads to the lake of Nemosuni, the lake of memory. And you want that's you don't want to drink from Lethe, which makes you forget every your past life. Mm-hmm. You want to drink from Nemosuni. You want to be one of the elect that kind of remembers their past lives. And you drink from Nemosuni, and you also have to announce your presence to the underworld. And you say, I am a son of the, the, the bright heaven and the stars, something along that line. So you basically, here we are in the underworld, but we're having reference to stars and planets and the sun. And uh, in initiation, a lot of the, <clears throat> the uh, cryptic accounts we get of initiation talk about a sun shining in the darkness. Mm-hmm. The sun shining. And, and in Virgil's, every, everyone should check out book six of the Aeneid by Virgil, because that has an amazing account of a, a whole celestial sky uh, in the underworld. So the point of this rambling is that <laughs> Katabasis, Katabasis is, is connected already to Anubasis, right? Mm-hmm. You go down, but you're going up. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true of Anubasis. You often have going down themes. So going up into heaven can be, for example... For example, the caves of the Mithraists, which are you go into a cave, but once you get in the cave, you look up and what do you see? The night sky painted on the ceiling. So the cave represents perhaps the cosmos. Or the blue canopy of heaven. Yeah. Quite so. <laughs> Is it? Was that? A Masonic was reference. That, was that a Masonic reference? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. That went over my head. Yeah. It was esoteric. <laughs> I, mean, I, I could talk about this for two hours. I mean, it just opens up a whole... A can of worms, so to speak, about um, you know this this desire to place the birth of Jesus in a cave, right? Mm. Um, and like in the Proto Evangelion of James, you know the Infancy Gospels, the um, where where uh, Mary gets a, a an OB exam uh, from from a from a midwife, I guess. Uh, but there's this old tradition of Jesus being born in a cave, um, which for whatever reason, seems to be persistent in Christianity, even though the Gospels do not say that at all. Yeah. Um, and uh, and even, you know, if you go to Bethlehem, there's the Milk Cave. Uh, that is a holy site for Muslims and, and for Catholics. Um, there's this need to put Jesus in a cave somehow, um, which I, I sort of always wondered is, is connected to the tomb of the resurrection as well. But um, but there is this need to put him in the cave uh, at birth, and that has no connection to the gospel tradition at all. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, in terms of ascent and descent narratives um, in the late antique period, which is, I mean, Jesus himself, whoever, they, you know, the, the birth of the Jesus movement is sometime around zero AD, right? Or mm. one AD. But... Um, in terms of when Christianity really takes on the form of Christianity, we're talking about, you know, second century onward, at least in terms of the evidence that survives. And in this period, so moving into late antiquity, um, you have a plethora of movements 
related to Christianity, which now in retrospect, we don't call Christian. So Valentinianism, um, mm-hmm. later Gnostic movements like the Sethians and so on. And they're super, super into their ascent and descent narratives, right? So, um, and it's really interesting because Jesus is like a new take on the ascent and descent. He has to, he descends, right? So he's, mm-hmm. it, depending on your theology and whatever, but he's coming from where God is, which to a, to a um, literal-minded second century person is basically beyond the sphere of the fixed stars. It's heaven. It's literally, this is why it's called heaven, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because people really thought if you, if you want to get to God, you have to go up. Like he's, he's right. up in the sky. He's beyond the sky. Jesus has to come down. And we even have, um, you know, accounts of his descent in, in apocryphal gospels where he um, has to negotiate with all these different kind of angels on the way. He has to kind of sneak down. He comes down, saves the world, does his salvation thing. And then he might have a further catabasis to hell, the harrowing of hell that you talked about, which is, again, isn't canonical in the, in the gospels, but it's super canonical in a lot of traditional stories mm-hmm. of Christianity. I think, I think even it's in, in the medieval, apostles creed, yeah. There you go. So it's yeah. it's it's mm-hmm. like a uh, a required canonical belief, right? Right. In most flavors of of mainstream Christianity, but it's not in the Gospels. He goes down in some in some. I think is, is it the apocryphal Gospel of James where he uh, he meets Hades, the Greek god of the underworld, and they have a chat. And Hades or no, Hades is there, and he's like, "Oh no, look who's coming!" And the, the guys with Hades are like, <laughs> "Well, in the original who, way, who the- he's like." The original way the Apostles' Creed was written, as I understand, has not he descended into hell as he descended into Hades. Into Hades, there yeah. you go. Um, yeah, because hell doesn't hell is a Germanic word anyway. It's mm. not even on the radar yet. Um, he goes to Hades, and Hades, the god, the personification of the underworld, is there, and he's like, "Oh no, here goes the neighborhood." And Jesus comes and basically <laughs> does his thing. He's like, "Right, I'm freeing you lot. You guys are, you know, the, there's a new message on. There's a, a new." Uh, new kid on the block now and the old mm-hmm. rules have been broken um mm-hmm. setting up you know all kinds of stuff like doctrines of purgatory and doctrines of salvation and all this sort of thing then he goes back up to the world and then he goes back up to heaven right mm-hmm. so he's so there's death and resurrection involved in this obviously um there's ascent and descent there's all these really powerful themes but it's like a new a new model of how this works and this you know in the pentecost you know of, of spirit and fleshing uh, could that be a descent as well? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Well, the, 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 when they talk about the Holy Spirit coming down, they talk about it coming down. Like right. if you look at the Greek, it's the, the Holy Spirit descended. Right. Um, and again, I think in antiquity, it's very uh, sound, philologically sound to, re- to really see this as um, literal because people really lived in a, you know, they lived in a geocentric cosmos with, planetary spheres around and then the sphere of the fixed stars so they lived you know if you imagine the earth is at the center of creation and the further up you go the more you get closer to god basically and then finally you get past the sphere of the fixed stars and then what's out what's outside the cosmos heaven god um so if the holy spirit's going to come onto you it's going to come down onto you it's sort of going to like rain down on you from above that's fascinating. You know, there's a Christian theologian named Thomas Altizer. I don't know if you've come across him, um, who actually, uh, he was uh, not a student of Eliade, but was close to Eliade. Um, and 
created a, metaf- a Christian metaphysics around uh, Paul's notion of kenosis uh, that uh, reads the the history of God in, in world as this dialectic procession uh, that he tries to connect to Hegel uh, that, that is very much in line with what, what we're talking about here. It's fascinating. Yeah. That's interesting. It's interesting from my perspective as a, um, as a scholar of Western esotericism, because when if ever my podcast gets to the 20th century, uh, <laughs> it would be about 10 years from now. I will, t- of course, be talking about Mircea Eliade as a hugely yeah. important Western esotericist thinker because he's mm-hmm. he was a, a prominent scholar at the University of Chicago, but he was first and foremost a student of uh, René Guénon and mm-hmm. traditionalism, this sort of current mm-hmm. of Western, modern Western esotericism. And... Hegel was also, there's a really good book about um, Hegel's debt to the Western esoteric tradition. So going back right. to the 19th century, Hegel himself is also, you know, reading the Hermetica and uh, esoteric Platonist texts and all this kind of stuff. So these, this is Western esotericism reinventing itself through um, philosophy and scholarship. Well, let me use that as a jumping point for the questions I actually wrote down to ask you. Uh, Please do. <laughs> uh, is that uh, how I discovered your podcast was through a small group of people that are interested in radical Christian theology. And mm-hmm. um, and there is a lot of interest in esotericism uh, from this group of scholars that are mostly not tenured, um, but but are teaching somewhere in universities or, or are just armchair theologians that are really well-read. Um, and uh, one of the things that's interesting is, is that uh, when we talk about theology, uh, when, or when we talk about theology, it's in a very broad sense that includes Western esotericism, especially in that we see esotericism as being hugely important on um, Hegel and hugely important on uh, a thinker that I'm not real enthralled with, but others are, uh, Giles Deleuze. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm curious how your training places or situates Western esotericism, uh, within the world of theology versus philosophy in the United States, you know, uh, theology and philosophy are often outside of Catholic universities, just not talking to each other. Um, and in philosophy departments, there's this, there's this weird division between analytic and continental philosophy. Uh, whereas analytic philosophy would probably not take any of this seriously. Um, and And continental wouldn't either, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, all those continental dudes, I mean, it's, it's a made up, it's not a real historical thing, continental philosophy, but if we're thinking of, you know, like, um, Derrida and, and Foucault mm-hmm. and people like that. They're all atheists, right? So they're not taking so. theology seriously either. Right. Well, or it depends what you mean by theology. Um, mm. So I, I'm curious, and I don't want to make this a big statement of myself uh, situated as a question, but uh, one of the things I found really fascinating about your podcast going through is eventually you get to Plato. I don't know how long into it it, it was, maybe 15, 20 episodes in. Mm-hmm. Um, your introductions to Plato and, and the, the interview you did about the computer model with syllables uh, uh, in the Republic uh, with oh, yes. with a graduate student that was fascinating. Yeah, um, was scary. You know, and and uh, that blows my mind. <laughs> I uh, so why, why don't you why don't you let him tell us what that was? Okay, and then we can because uh, we well, know it. It's an inside very briefly, joke. But, yeah. um, 
a bunch of people have worked for a long time on looking for patterns within the platonic dialogues and we know that the republic was um a, we have we have strong evidence from antiquity that the republic was a, a work that plato labored over with an especially especially minute level of detail um it's a huge work it's a complex work but we have every reason to think that every single word in that thing is is weighed up carefully and very deliberately placed and there are incredibly complex structures within the dialogue itself like mathematical structures and probably structures based on harmonic theory that's drawing from the the late pythagorean tradition i would i would just say that as a sort of like to whet people's appetite and they can go check out um, the interview I did with Maya Alapin, which is right. who is a, a current graduate student who's drawing on a lot of the earlier work, but modeling it with computers and, and crunching the numbers and seeing, does this really add up? Does this really add up? Okay, that doesn't, this does. Okay, wow. You know, and then you, you end up with a picture where um, the chances that this is all accident in Plato's dialogue are beyond vanishingly small and it's very mm -hmm. clear that plato's doing something super elaborate on a literary level with his with the the actual form of the dialogue and it's a big ring it's a big ring composition so the beginning meets up with the end and there are these kind of there's a midpoint and then there are these sort of mirrored parallel um events on mirrored harmonic intervals from the midpoint it's all it's really really cool mm -hmm. yeah i mean i did a doctoral exam uh, on, on plato uh, when I was doing my PhD and the, um, when I was creating my bibliography, the, my advisor said, we'll start with secondary literature by Grube and sort of go out from there. Um, and another advisor told me to focus on Whitehead, which I didn't do. Um, right. <laughs> and, but it's, it's fascinating when you read the complete works of Plato, it's undeniably weird. Uh, it's, it's not the Plato that you're taught in your intro to philosophy class. And, um, but then all of the literature is really not focused on that at all. It's, it's really focused on how this historically has become handed down. And, uh, I teach intro to philosophy at Penn state as uh, the York campus as a, as an adjunct. And, uh, this is something I often wonder of how to present Plato in a way that's honest that mm. takes this seriously while while balancing out the fact that you know the the allegory of the cave is so important and i i use the old cartoon with orson welles uh that was made years ago uh of the allegory of the cave to explain it but i don't know if you have any insight into like how how can uh the scholarly conversation take this more seriously or be more vital mm. uh from this information yeah well um it's a really good question. You know, it. I think the image, the rather bloodless image of Plato that we now see as the dominant model of Plato, right, which is very much mediated by uh, analytic philosophy. Right. Mm -hmm. So, 90% of what philosophy departments do with Plato is chop him up into little pieces and see if the, if the arguments make sense. And if, if they do make sense or if they don't, why don't they? And this sort of thing. So, so applying logic to Plato as, and that's the be all and end all of what Plato was doing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a broader historical perspective, up until the 19th century, every, well, so, sorry, let me start again. From the first century BC onwards, 
So from like the works of Cicero onwards until the 19th century, everybody thinks, like everybody but everybody thinks Plato is an esoteric writer who doesn't lay his cards on the table, who has a, a dogmatic, secret, initiatory inner meaning that mm. only the sort of adepts can decipher from his work. So if you look at the majority opinion about Plato through Western history, that's it. So the analytic Plato, which we think of as this sort of, that's what everyone thinks Plato is, is a very, very recent and actually very hard won um, image of Plato. So people have worked really hard to create this image mm. of Plato. And I think it's a case of babies in bathwater, right? So mm. they, they, they wanted to question, this is starting from Schleiermacher. They really wanted to question right. this kind of view of Plato as the, the great esoteric writer, which did have a bunch of unwarranted assumptions within it. And in doing so, they basically chucked out a load of really obvious stuff that shouldn't have been chucked out, like the fact that Plato wrote dialogues. Right. <laughs> you you would literally have. Um, I mean, if I were doing a, a class on Plato, you know, which one day maybe I'll I'll have the the delight of being able to do that. The first thing I would talk about is the dialogue form that he invented, this right. prose dialogue where where he isn't ever a character. <laughs> Right. So he's never, you never see Plato in a Platonic dialogue, except as an absent guy that someone mentions. Where's Plato? He's not here. Okay, let's carry on. Um, yeah, the first thing th I have Surely my, that's significant. The first thing I have my students read uh, is Plato's Apology, like an abridged version. Now um, you're talking. And, and the, the reading quiz the first day, this, and this is like the second day of class, uh, is name one character in Plato's Apology. Um, just to see if they read it and, you know, half of them say Plato and half say apology. And that, that's a good way of launching. Into, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would have been me. Right. That's a good way of launching into not only why you should actually read what I signed, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. the dialogue format here that, that, that Plato is how he's re writing himself in and out of the text. Yeah. yeah. So that's Our, one of Plato, Plato's break. name only appears four times in the dialogues. Yeah. And that one of them is in the apology where someone says, right. Plato was there. Right, right. He's not a character, but he was there. He was present. And that's yeah. it. So, Earl, um, we're, we're going to have to cut you off at this. I, I, would, I would love to have you back because there's, there's other things I'd like to talk about. Uh, Hermes, Trismegistus, uh, the mm. Egyptian mysteries, Kabbalah, Rosicrucianism, all of that stuff is here. Um, we just don't know it's here. And I'd love to be able to flesh some of that out with you. That at, stuff at a later is, time. is definitely in the DNA of Masonry for sure. Absolutely. So, um, so we would just like to thank you for coming in and blowing our minds. Um, mm -hmm. We encourage thank everybody you. to listen to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism, and uh, and we're uh, we're just going to go and try and heal from this, Earl. It's just uh, well, guys. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sorry, I, I nattered so much. I'd love I'd love to hear more of what you guys have to say about uh, Freemasonry and stuff like that. But well, maybe we'll have to, maybe that'll be next time. Masoniclight.com. Try it out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, Earl, stay esoteric. Stay esoteric. Word. <laughs> stay doubly esoteric. Peace. So that gentle <laughs> listeners I'm still is, mopping my brain up off the floor. Yeah, we've got, it's all over the walls in here. It's just uh, our, 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 our conversation with Earl. Uh, we, we certainly want to encourage you, after you've listened to Masonic Light Podcast, then switch over and listen to Schwepp, 
you can find it at schwepp.net. That's S-H-W-E-P.net. And it will enhance your Masonic journey, improve your vocabulary, make your teeth whiter, and your hair shinier. <laughs> Hey, Pete, that's a sharp-looking shirt you got there. Where did you get it? Oh, this shirt? That shirt. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, this. Uh, I got it on themasonicmarketplace.com. Wow, what is that? It's amazing. It's uh, the store online for the Scottish Rite, Northern Masonic Jurisdiction. Wow, that is awesome. And where do I find that? www.themasonicmarketplace.com. symbols with symbologist Michelle Snyder. Unlocking beauties and beasts. One of today's most enchanting stories, Beauty and the Beast, is about a widower and his daughters, one of whom is kind and gentle. In the course of events, the father is taken by a beast in a castle, and his kind-hearted daughter agrees to take his place. The beast is very good to her, and as her time with him passes, she begins to see the good person beneath the dreadful exterior. Eventually, he is wounded by villagers who hate and fear him, and she discovers she loves him. Her, her love releases him from the evil spell which made him a beast. This is a classic theme, a young girl matched with a suitor by her parents who want her to be well cared for and protected, in spite of the gentleman's efforts to wine and dine her, or even his good manners and considerable wealth, she sees him as a beast for a while. In contrast, modern versions of the story emphasize the gentle young female taming the real beast of a male through her care and consideration, bringing out the best in him despite the opinions of those around him. As ideal as this sounds, it is not realistic. Girls who marry drunks or men prone to violence or other bad behaviors, thinking they will transform him as his wife, invariably fail, usually to their own detriment. The classic story points out that it is how men act and treat their women, not how they look, that is important. Another tale of very similar roots is the Frog Prince. In this story, we meet a spoiled princess who loses a favorite trinket down a well. It is recovered by a slimy frog only after the doleful girl promises him a seat at dinner. After trying to ditch him and avoid keeping her promise, the king decrees that she must keep her word. There are a few variations to the theme whereby she is mean to the frog, but all end with her discovering that, she, that he is really a prince under a wicked spell. These stories come from a time when marriages were arranged, when most available good men were older, or were widowers, and perhaps even on the ugly side. These tales have roots in prehistory thousands of years ago, during milder climate periods, when humankind painted magnificent animal calendrics on cave walls, such as those in Lascaux. There were many dangers to overcome, and males often died, so there were few left to be husbands and protectors. These are stories of young girls who, in spite of the efforts of family to arrange the relationship with an interested and suitable male, are repelled by his looks or his age, or perhaps he does not measure up to their dreams. 
Suitors for children for daughters is a concern which has haunted parents since there were parents, and it is just as prevalent today, even in cultures where arranged marriages do not happen. Parents in their basic sense have not changed over millennia, nor have the needs of humans, food, shelter, clothing, protection. This knowledge is an important piece of our golden key. For more oral tradition decoded, read Symbology, Fairy Tales Uncovered. Next time, we will investigate the secrets of one-eye symbols. If you'd like to take a deeper look, be sure to check out Michelle's book, Symbology, Revision. A link for purchase can be found on the Freya Foundation website. That's freafoundation.net. While you're there, take a look at some of Michelle's other works and find out more about the Freya Foundation and its mission to research and publish the Ensman archives. In Masonic News Today, the Grand Lodge of Nevada has released an edict reaffirming the requirement that the only volume of sacred law to be on the altar is the Christian King James Bible. The interwebs exploded in comments against this position, which was made, in reality, to bring Masonic practice into conformity with the bylaws of that Grand Lodge. Meanwhile, the Grand Lodge of Brooklyn has issued a similar edict permitting the use of several holy books, including the Torah, the Koran, the Vedas, Captain America Issue 7, and Martha Stewart's Guide to Holiday Entertainment. That's the Masonic News. So mote it was. <laughs> it's time for the Lodge Business Brief with Brother Jim Stevens. Well, again, Masonic Light Podcast listeners, this is Jim Stevens with another Lodge Business Brief. Today we will discuss mistakes. Regardless of whether you're a leader, a mentor, or an uninvolved third party, we all have a role to play in developing a new leader's response to making mistakes. All too often, leaders only receive negative feedback to their mistakes. Constructive criticism is important, but the delivery and timing of that criticism can make the difference between the leader learning and quitting. New leaders need mentors, examples, and coaching. If all they see and hear are negative comments, that is what will become their reality. Pick your battles and focus on what is important. If your lodge's goal is to provide education to its members, don't dwell on a mistake relating to the minutes. Alternatively, look for ways to praise, lift up, and encourage. Be the light in the new leader's day. Your positive feedback will make a difference. Your delivery matters. We owe our brother good counsel that is whispered, not broadcast. Always praise in public and admonish in private. If you are a leader, don't fear making mistakes. Mistakes are simply tuition. We learn more from making mistakes and correcting them than we will ever learn by doing them correctly. Be grateful for the opportunity to make a mistake. Take the chance to learn and grow. Reframing your mental attitude from a mistake being dreadful and fearing it to gratitude is not easy. If you work at it, you will find that being grateful, your general attitude improves, the stress of making mistakes will be reduced, and your willingness to take on more risks will be increased. If you are not involved in a mistake, nor a mentor for the leader, you still have a role to play. If you see a leader struggling, ask how you can help. It is, after all, one of the tenets of Freemasonry to help each other. Your aid and assistance can mean the difference between success and failure. If a leader makes a mistake, you can learn from it. 
This is especially critical if in a few years you will be in his chair. Watch and learn. Additional ideas on how to grow and mentor new leaders can be found in my book, Lodge Business, The Theoretical Application of Entrepreneurial Business Practices to Blue Lodge, available on Amazon. This is Jim Stevens with your Lodge Business Brief. So uh, let's wrap up today's show. And uh, what have we got going on in the next uh, couple of weeks? Uh, now, this show will be airing December 2nd, so basically between now and uh, the holidays. Well, tomorrow, which would be last week after this is posted right. sometime in the next two weeks. In the future. Will be uh, elections for Ubar Grotto. Mm -hmm. So it will be the last Grotto event that I manage or, uh, or, or supervisor lifesaver whatever i am uh, lifeguard but so that that will be fun it's been a great year at grotto and everyone has has behaved themselves and and participated and done really well and what meeting was that i look forward to <laughs> jeff el duce fulton uh, to take on the reins and keep us going in a, a really um good solid direction so that's me for the next and then we have stated meeting and all that uh, we'll have our own elections here at effort a lodge uh, and that's it great chris how about you uh the pennsylvania uh lodge of research is meeting in a couple weeks um i i have some church commitments so i'm not sure if i'll be able to go uh but that's always a good time if you're listening to it and it hasn't happened yet it's in pittsburgh Do you know what day that um, is, is it the 7th oh, is that okay. a saturday that'll be later this week as if you're listening to this when yeah. it's released and um i've been focusing a lot of my efforts on scouting lately uh so oh, I'm, boy. which is a pseudo masonic group and uh i i got <laughs> is that fair to say yeah we did a show on it yeah yeah and uh I'm, i've been suckered into i shouldn't say suckered but i've i volunteered to be the committee chair for the Cub Scout pack that my daughters are in. And since they've allowed girls into Cub Scouts, uh, I would have never guessed that my daughters would be in scouting and they love it. Um, so, and our Cub Scout group has grown from like 13 or 14 to almost 40 or over 40 uh, in the last two years. So a lot of girls. Um, and uh, so I'm doing a lot of stuff with scouting right now. Cool. Great. Josh, how about you? You don't have anything going on, do you? No, well, I got school of instruction. Um, I think we have a lodge practice and uh, and an open what's, installation. What's, what's happening installation. tomorrow? If you're listening to this show on the day of release, uh, I will be installed as worshipful master of Lamberton Lodge, number four hundred and seventy-six. So, if you are a mason in good standing, and would or even if you're not, because it's an open installation, right? That's right. Yeah. So you know, bring your wife, your kids, your Neighbors, wife's kids, any you know, whatever. Friend, just don't bring them both. Just yeah, uh, and you can witness the immortal Josh Lamberton being installed. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, as we've discussed, this is the time of year when we conduct elections and installation of officers. So if you're listening to this. On the day of release tonight, we will be installing, electing and installing our uh, incoming Worshipful Master, Ken, Kenneth B. Robinson, who's a former guest on the show. Um, and then on Wednesday uh, is the uh, quarterly communication of the Grand Lodge Pennsylvania, where the election of officers will occur. 
Um, and then on the 7th, the same day as the uh, event that Chris mentioned, uh, we as a Masonic Light podcast will actually be uh, at the holiday happenings at the Valley of Reading. Uh, so if you are going to that event, stop by and see us, uh, talk to us, and we will uh, maybe get your bit on the air. So uh, I guess I better put that on my yeah, calendar. Yeah, you should probably do that. Yikes. Uh, so that's about it uh, for now. Uh, just as an FYI, uh, don't forget on the 27th of December uh, will be the uh, open installation for Grand Lodge officers as well. Yep. So I'm going to that. All right. Yep. So we've been joined in studio by a very special guest here, Jay Laser. Laser. How are you doing, uh, Jay? Have you got anything going on uh, Masonically? As I uh, knock your microphone all over the place, just talk. Okay, I'll I'll uh, I'll watch you. Okay. Jay is the most <laughs> oh, Lord. Jay is the most accomplished <coughs> scout volunteer that I know. Uh, what do you got going on Masonically coming Masonically. up? Masonically, well, tomorrow or uh, on the twenty fourth of October, which will. You mean have November. been passed by the time this right. hits the air. We will have our Uber Grotto. Yeah. And uh, about a week after, we'll be here at Ephrata for their uh, big to-do. Right. As the new officers are taking their places. Uh, let's see. A whole bunch of Boy Scout stuff coming up. Some TBT, Throwing Bull Tribe. That's, that's always fun to go have dinner and play around there. Right now, I think that's just about it. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap up today's show. Um, Larry Maris is not with us today. He got called away on a family emergency at the last minute. And uh, Pete's not here either. Um, we were, uh, as, as much as my brains were splattered across the walls on this, uh, I'm afraid Pete's would have... Uh, it just dissolved into a It just a dissolved into a puddle yeah. on the chair. So, anyway... Uh, Brother Chris, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Jack, why don't you uh, take us out of here uh, in uh, Larry style? So let's cue the chickens. Uh, Special thanks to Ever <coughs> Lodge number 665 for the use of the studio. Uh, Josh Lamberton for our fabulous uh, production. Uh, Jack Harley, our news director. Tim Dedman, our unemployed marketing director, and whoever else I would normally thank at this time. Uh, 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 gotta be <laughs> the most distinctive. I'm sorry, Larry. I love you, buddy. Internet radio. <laughs> they made me do it. They made me do it. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope to. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. I know we have, but uh, tune in. This is Tim. This is Josh. This is Chris. This is Jack, and that's Jay over there. Jay's sitting over there. All right. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.